does this mean that this energy I put into becoming a doctor and I'm going to be out of a job in the future? This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation, new, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. Hey folks, it's Adrian. Just a quick editor's note before you dive into the episode. At the time of this recording, Twitter was indeed called Twitter. At the time of the release of this episode, which is not very long after, Twitter is now being called X, according to Elon Musk. It's far beyond me in August of 2023 to know how that is going to play out, but I just wanted to let you know so that no one gets confused. Also, you're going to hear Melissa talking about the TAVI procedure. This is a cardiology procedure that is a minimally invasive valve replacement. The surgery can be called transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR, which appears to be more common in the U.S. to call it that. Um, And in the U.K., it's often called transcatheter aortic valve implantation or TAVI. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast, the podcast that brings innovations and best practices in healthcare to your podcasting app. I'm Adrian, your host. This is a DPI emergency episode because of some recent events that have been blowing up our inboxes about a nurse practitioner across the pond. Joining me to discuss the situation is friend of the pod, Melissa Stratman, the CEO of Coleman Associates. Melissa, I know that you're probably laughing to yourself because we often say there are no DPI emergencies, but a couple of days ago, you called me a bit hot around the collar about this story coming out of the UK. Can you tell us what happened and what got you so interested? Absolutely, Adrian. I want to just touch base about this crazy tweet that came out just last week. It was from a health center in England who was sharing a celebration story. Started out momentous day for and it listed the organization for the organization quote, dot 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 and the whole world, it said. John is the first nurse, an ANP, who has performed the whole TAVI procedure as the first operator. Thumbs up. True transformation addressing the NHS needs. Congratulations, John. We are so proud of you. Applause, applause, applause. That tweet was taken down like less than a week later because the community of healthcare providers, of physicians, of cardiologists in particular, blew up over this post. And they were not celebrating the momentous day and the benefit for NHS needs and the whole world. It was unbelievable. And just for our listeners who live on in the States is the NHS is the National Health Service in the UK, which is their health system, essentially. Totally, totally. And Adrian, what people were writing is, quote, this is so inappropriate on so many levels. This is unsafe. It just, it was an amazing. And so they took it down and basically said, we're looking into it. And it, this is my interpretation of it. Basically, we're looking into like 
if there was some guidance here or some governance that got overlooked, basically I interpret that as we already had a rule that permitted people from doing this thing and somehow we didn't follow the rules. And it kind of was a little bit of a mea culpa that they've made poor John's life really difficult now because John's probably getting a lot of crap from people for his success. And just so we're clear, whenever we're talking about John's procedure, it's very much like the patient did well, right? Like the patient outcome was positive. As much as they can reveal about the patient outcome, it seems as though it was a smashing success. And at least theoretically, an organization would not be celebrating a situation where a patient did not have a good outcome. So I think, you know, for listeners who aren't aware, I'm a nurse and I found this also bothersome because the the conversation was, you know, I, of course, went and went and looked at the Wayback Machine to find the original tweet, to read the articles that have been written about this, about the hubbub that happened after this. And even some of the statements that are coming out, like from some cardiology associations and their statements have changed over time to be more and more you know, to be a little harsher on the situation about it not happening. And I just want to see, like, why do you think this matters from a DPI perspective? To me, it's the, it's both a combination of the language that was used. Like, this is crazy. Is this a joke? Do what, you know, it's that kind of language that is so, it's just, it pits group against group. And it undoes what we've been consistently working toward, which is you have to recognize people who do great work regardless of their training. And it's not like they just went and pulled John in, you know, off of the sidewalk and said, hey, how's about you give this thing a shot? I mean, the guy clearly is experiencing cardiology, et cetera, but it it just blew up everything that I think people are afraid of, which is that this that I've worked so hard for, which is to become a physician or to become a specialist, is now being threatened and might be taken over by others. And I'll tell you, Adrian, I was doing a seminar basically for a state family practice association. And with so a, a whole room full of physicians, mostly some NPs and PAs, but almost exclusively physicians. It was intended for physicians. And when I was talking to them about some of the changes that were happening in healthcare, one sweet soul in the front of the room finally raised her hands and she said, does this mean that this energy I put into becoming a doctor and I'm going to be out of a job in the future? And I thanked her profusely for sharing what clearly other people were thinking. And I said, heavens no, AI technology, that's all going to assist, but we still need great clinical people. We just need you to shift from knowing all the answers to being able to deliver the care in a way that people can receive and act upon. And to me, that's what they were trying to do here was open up the bottleneck of who can provide these services so that more people can get care. I mean, that's exactly what it said. True transformation addressing NHS needs. Amazing. Yeah. And I want to talk just a little bit concretely because, you know, at Coleman Associates, we really pride ourselves on having like really concrete things and explaining it in sort of brass tacks sort of a language is so, for example, one of the things that you and I were looking at is if we're looking at the U.S. and obviously this happened in the U.K., but if we're looking at the U.S., what 
is the average wait time for patients for cardiology, right? And so we found that on average, according to the American Academy of Family Physicians, the average wait time for a cardiology appointment is 26.5 days. And I will say it doesn't always serve me in terms of time management, but on things like this, it's good that I'm the kind of person that reads the footnotes because as I was digging into it, what I found is it is like a very well-respected study that's done. It's done regularly, but it's actually only, it only accounts for the top 15 metropolitan areas. It actually leaves out a huge portion of the country. And I wonder if you could just talk briefly about what we see in more rural areas in terms of access to cardiology. Absolutely. Well, you know, Adrian, we work with a lot of health centers and for some of them, one of their big challenges is referrals. They get behind on referrals and particularly in the community health center world, it, it basically breaks down very quickly on the basis of economics. If you've got an insurer payer that will cover you, you can usually get in with a specialist within a reasonable amount of time because they can take that and work with it. But for people who are on sliding fee scale plans, which is required through HRSA to have these sliding scales to make sure that we're accommodating everyone's needs. Those patients, not infrequently, have to come up with the money for the specialty appointment before they go. And I know at least of one place that I'm working with right now, it's a two and a half hour drive to the specialty at the university that will take sliding scale patients. So that means that when they go to create the referral or offer the referral, they have to get the patient's consent that they're willing to go. And some patients will say, I can't do that. I don't have transportation to get two and a half hours away. That's out of the question for me. It's not going to happen. Therefore, they just don't go in for the care. So I realize that we're struggling in so many rural areas with having these specialists and especially specialists that will accept and can accommodate patients with less than Cadillac insurance plans. And it's by no fault of the specialists. I mean, they're trying to balance their own time management too and their own demand, but there's just not enough access. And if we can increase that access by increasing the people that can provide the care, that's a win-win. Yes. And I was thinking about another organization that I've been working with who I think their cardiology referrals for similar reasons of driving distance, but also just availability in general is out six months right now. And just thinking about specifically, you know, I think this doesn't just apply. I know, actually, I know this doesn't just apply to cardiology, right? Is if we think about some of these other specialties that are big hot topics for referrals, like I think about psychiatry is often a big one. Dermatology, going to an endocrinologist. There's, I mean, there's many other ones also, but those are some of the ones that come up the most frequently. And I'm thinking about some of the places that I know of like, even they're starting to do, they're starting to do programs that are continuing education for their family practice folks so that they can provide more of those services because many patients just go without care. Right. And you, you mentioned sliding scale folks who are absolutely, absolutely need more access to specialties. And a lot of specialties don't even take Medicaid. I think what I read was that around 80% of cardiologists take Medicaid in those big metropolitan areas. And we, and there are states that don't have expanded Medicaid. And so you get more people that are on sliding scale. So this impacts a huge number of patients and specifically their health outcomes right? Because if you just don't go get care, your health outcomes are going to be worse. 
It's absolutely true. And to be honest, it puts more of a burden on a family practitioner because a family practitioner is not going to say, well, I'm not going to see you until you go to see the cardiologist. They're just going to try to continue to manage as best they can. Psychiatry is an area where that happens all the freaking time. Most family practitioners will say they're not in a position to make big changes. They can manage psych meds if a patient is stable on their psych meds with good outcomes, but to make adjustments or to even change meds is not necessarily their bag. And I get that, but it puts the burden and the onus on them if there's not psych available because then they feel the responsibility and the need. And I, I can see that side of the coin too. You know, every one of these things, there's two sides of the coin. And I can see that where family practitioners then try to do their best, but they're not trying to jump in and be the specialist. They're just trying to do the best they can to fill the gap. And that's why I think this tweet was so amazing because it was really out to celebrate somebody rising above and filling a gap. And boy, did they get smacked down quick. Right. And like so much of this comes down to the hierarchy of medicine and I doubt our listeners know this, but Melissa, you know that this week has been almost entirely dedicated for me to working on getting accreditation so that we can provide, amongst other things, CMEs and specifically interprofessional education CMEs. And I was just, you know, so I have all of these things on my mind. And for example, one of the Institute of Medicine's core competencies for physicians is working in interdisciplinary teams and knowing how to communicate amongst them. It's part of the ethics is having respect for other professions. And I think this this really struck me partially from a data perspective of, and I'm thinking about the, the physician who was kind enough to state her concern about how much need there is. And we are not anywhere close to meeting that need. And so everyone who is in healthcare is absolutely necessary. And we have to continue to work together to get to that place. It's totally true, Adrian. Really, in some ways, it boils down to a bit of like a a political and a philosophical discussion about the value of hierarchy within society. But, you know, there's a lot of places where hierarchy doesn't work. High school, there's a lot of social hierarchies that are really broken. There are hierarchies just because there's a hierarchy in the prison system doesn't mean that it's working well for people. You know, I mean, there's we can't just respect hierarchy for the sake of order. And I think that's what some of these people were getting a little ruffled about is that it's treading on this sacred territory. And I think it provokes a beautiful question about whether or not this is a hierarchy we want to respect. Yeah. And Melissa, I'm thinking about, I believe it was Blink from Malcolm Gladwell. It was definitely one of his books, but I can't totally remember which one right now. They all blend together if you like read them all really fast, turns out. But the some of the examples that they give of like where hierarchy can genuinely be dangerous. And we see this in healthcare, right? Like that's why whenever you're doing a surgery, there's always a pause to make sure that everybody is on the same page and encourages folks to speak up and say like, no, I think something is wrong, right? And that's a policy that was implemented and has become a best practice because of things like cutting off the wrong leg for people and things like that. I think about the example from Malcolm Gladwell's book about pilots and teaching pilots and especially co-pilots to really speak up because there's examples of folks who didn't speak up because of the hierarchy and like a plane ran out of fuel and crashed, right? And I mean, 
you're not in a situation where an entire jet plane is going to crash here. But if we're not, if we're not breaking down that hierarchy in a way where everybody can be involved, then it actually puts patients at risk versus the other side of it. You're, you're right, Adrian. And what is so analogous to that example is that in all of us, in whatever industry it is, we appreciate when there's not hierarchy that benefits us. But whatever the wherever you are, you want to make sure that you're protected. It's human nature. And so, you know, I can understand that pilots want to have the ultimate say on this thing. But if they don't stop and listen to the co-pilot, that can definitely be a problem. And, you know, checking. So it's this idea that we we all respect it when we see it broken down around us. And we see how it benefits us. But this one was obviously very myopic and it was a knee-jerk reaction. And I think, honestly, I think some of the responses are going to continue to evolve because I think some of the people that initially had their hackles raised, I mean, I can hear, I can hear in my ears what some of my close friends and family members who are physicians would say. Things like, well, if that person knows what they're doing, and they're being safe and they're following a procedure, what would be wrong with that? You know, and then maybe it's, I don't think I could do it. But then again, you know, there's physicians that in the same way, I know I have friends that are physicians that won't even admit that they're physicians on an airplane because they don't want to be called into duty to deliver a baby or something like that because they feel like they'd be out of practice on it. So there's all different levels of how much people want to show their status in the hierarchy. And we all know that it benefits people when we break the hierarchy down. So it's just a matter, I think this was a really beautiful opportunity to start a further conversation about how we need to address the medical hierarchy differently. And Adrian, if I can add one other thing, one of the interesting responses that's been now in a follow-up because there's that tweet was taken down, but somebody else had grabbed the tweet and retweeted it. And so a bunch of people are responding to that. And one of the comments that I saw, which was really interesting, is people said, this is another fight against the Americanization of our healthcare system, which was said across the pond, which I thought was a very interesting comment because we know our healthcare system is broken. and they were seeing it as an opportunity to, as, as some American clinicians see it, as making everybody providers, but really taking away the, the respect of the clinicians. And I don't think it's all at all about taking away the respect. I think it's about really looking at outcomes rather than, you know, maybe our training, I mean, we've been saying this for years in DPI, the way we train residents is crummy and outdated and not, as, not an awesome system. It's super crummy. It's super outdated. It doesn't work for patients. And in the same way, these hierarchies just don't serve patients. I just keep thinking about this because you see hierarchy everywhere. I mean, as a nurse, I know that nurses impose hierarchy also, right? On medical assistants, on other folks, we see it all the time in community health. Even the, you know, you can have the sharpest medical assistant and they're much better than a kind of dud nurse that you might run into. If I'm a listener at home or in my community health center, how can I work to fight this hierarchy that can be putting my patients at risk? I think one of the things that I noticed first and foremost in this tweet is that it broke down like every other tweet where it became a political thing. So before you know it, when you were scrolling through the tweet while it was still posted, there was, you know, it was suddenly like, oh, this is the Tories trying to do this, you know, which doesn't reconcile with our political system. But it just became this us versus them. And I think we all have to to choose 
to not be in the us versus them category. So it's looking at, so don't ever join in the, all these physicians think this or all this, this don't ever join in that party and put burden on anybody. It's each individual person. But I think in terms of what you can do more specifically than your mental adjustment is to continue to create those opportunities for like interdisciplinary team meetings, for huddles where we could talk about things, encourage people who are lower on the hierarchy to speak up and to share their thoughts, their feelings, their beliefs, their information Maybe not so much their feelings. It depends on how much you want to share feelings at work, but there's always their information, their release, et cetera, about patients and really raise that up so that we can have good dialogue. Yeah, I'm thinking about one of the simple things, well, simple and challenging things that we often advise people is having front desk staff members in your huddles, right? And it's this really simple thing, but people skip past it and think it's not important. But every time that you do that is you're really devaluing the work of folks at the front desk and they have so much good stuff to share. And I just think about, you know, not only does, not only are we talking about being able to provide really high quality care, but we're talking about things like burnout not nobody can do everything all by themselves, right? You have to be able to do it on a team. And we're also thinking about retention and recruitment, right? Is being able to retain folks in a role that challenges them, that gives them opportunity for growth is really critical. And I think what we would both agree on is that we are not in a position, especially in community health, to be like, no, we don't need to recruit and retain staff. Right. (laughs) It's totally true. And you know, some of my favorite clinicians are ones that make conscious verbal choices to empower staff, which is like, tell me what you think. Tell me how you want to add. And you know what? People love working for those clinicians. They love it because they're valued as part of a contributor to the greater good and the greater healthcare that's provided. And so again, oftentimes these retention issues, as you mentioned, which are clearly, you know, gaping everywhere despite this supposed economic recovery from the Great Recession, we're still as much as we can support people. And that's where clinicians or those in a greater position of hierarchy can do their best work. Anything else you want to share with our listeners, Mel? Well, you know, I was just, there was an interesting quote from Herb Kelleher, who started Southwest. And he says, fight hierarchy and bureaucracy as hard as you possibly can. Don't ever let it become the master. Always remember it's the servant. What I read in this quote, too, is that hierarchy has a place, but you can't let the hierarchy dictate how you make decisions, how you communicate. That's that gut reaction piece that really needs to be relooked at. And I think we all just need to open ourselves up to that opportunity. Uh, A big thanks to Melissa, one, for bringing this to my attention and some of the hubbub that was happening and for helping us think about how we as a healthcare system and those who are the innovators and creators in healthcare really need to be thinking about not only the impact of our actions in something like this, but how we are creating the situation for healthcare to be able to move past the servant to hierarchy and instead focusing on our bigger goals. So big thanks to Melissa for sharing her point of view on this. Just as a note, by the time that this is published, there will be an article that Melissa wrote on our website at colemanassociates.com. So make sure to check that out. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast so that you never miss an episode. 
If you or someone you know should be interviewed for an episode, just shoot us an email at notify at colemanassociates.com or reach out to us on social media. To keep up with all of the Chispa happenings, follow us on LinkedIn. A big shout out to Nikolai for all of his podcasting help, and we'll see you next time. Uh-huh.